0: opponents of dharma have always been there regardless of which age we live. I've been advised not to say the words
1: sanatan because it'll term me as right wing.
0: Now we see all these photos and videos of Bhagwan Shiv with Charas and whatever else. And if someone says that oh,
1: Shivji used to smoke so I want to smoke we should ask them Shivji also consumed poison. You're willing to consume poison? Hmm. A pujari who's performing these pujas and havans. What changes in that pujari's reality? That havan is very interesting. Lose track of everyone apart from the puja.
0: And the Agni. So, if you look at the picture of the divine, you will see that form in the fire. Clearly, the same form of Devi in the photo is the same form in the fire. To truly see Bhagwan, we need knowledge. So, this deep philosophy is embedded in the process of puja.
1: This answers the age-old question that children ask their parents while we're performing pujas. Why are we doing this? And the parents usually say, This is the actual answer. Yeah,
0: there is a deep core of Sanatan Bharat that wants to hear the word Sanatan, that live it in their heart, but are afraid to say
1: it on their lips. That's so true. (laughs) Goosebumps. We've had so many spiritualists come on the show and talk about ancient Indian culture. Very few people have openly spoken about what is referred to as Sanatan Dharm. A lot of people fear speaking about dharm That was the core of this episode. But if you've seen any of our episodes with Om Dhumatkar, you know what an articulate human hears. He's able to explain extremely complex concepts in the simplest of ways. So if you're someone who enjoys chatter about ancient Indian wisdom, this episode is also going to be one of your favorites. It's Om on TRS. We are back, baby. (laughs) just ohm in the house is the baby addressed to me or to everyone in general it's to the universe okay. to all of uh, what dharma encapsulates very good to be back thank you for having me <laughs> thank you for being back in the studio i think for me while i will extract a lot of information from you because you had a very eventful year um this is just kind of a catch up for me like i didn't talk to you outside i didn't <laughs> talk to you much here so that we can speak on camera uh, the things you're forced to do as a podcaster.
0: <laughs> I love these public therapy sessions. <laughs> they're the best. Actually you say the therapy sessions, they're actually satsang.
1: I love satsang. it. Satsang. Yeah. What is the word satsang? Satsang
0: mean? is a combination of two Sanskrit words. Sat means truth. Sang means company. And actually satsang can be the path through liberation as well. The great spiritual master Adi Shankaracharya said, Satsangatve nissangatvam nissangatve nirmohatvam nirmohatve mukti. That in the course of satsang, you get out of bad company, nissang. As a result of getting out of bad company, nissang, you get out of moha or delusion, nirmoha. Nirmohatve nishchalatatvam, as a result of getting out of delusion, we are firm in our convictions, our spiritual convictions. And as a result of being firm in our spiritual convictions, we are liberated in this lifetime itself. So satsang is the path to liberation. But
1: it's the elimination of bad company that begins this process? It No, It keep good company, bad company falls on itself. What does that mean? It means that if we want to detach
0: ourselves from the lower, one way to do it is by trying to throw everything away, getting rid of things. But it's difficult Because even if I may know that something is bad for me, I still have attachment to it. I still like it. I might have friends who are not right for me. They're not right for this chapter of my life. They're not right for where I want to go. But I still have some great memories with them. I still have some form of attachment to them. And if I reject them, then it's hurtful at both ends. It'll hurt me, it'll hurt them. The right way to do it is to attach to something that is greater. And then the lower attachments fall away on their own. If you think about in our childhood... Yeah, when we were 4 or 5 years old, we all had some toy, some car, some stuffed bunny. That was our favorite thing. We could not live without it. We used to go for birthday parties also. There was one, you know, half-dead little stuffed animal with us. But everyone thought it was, you know, dirty. But we loved it. It was our best thing. What happened? At some point, at age 8, nine, ten, we were attached to other things. And then this thing that was okay for one period of our life. But inappropriate for the next period of our life. This is the same thing. Good Sangha achieves that. Now, there are some really transcendental Puranic stories about what Sangha can do. But we'll see how the conversation goes and we can share them at the right time. I wonder what the stories
1: are.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you want me to go through them now?
1: Yeah, because I think friendship has become a priority for me at this point in life. I think for the longest time, throughout my late 20s, because of just how life went about and what society was telling me, I thought romance is the priority. And even through the show, I've realized that it's actually friendship that's the priority. Uh, Like I probably have three or four close bros in Mm -hmm. the world who've been there for donkey's years. And uh, I probably value them more than I value even a potential romance that could come into my life because... Uh, you know, the romance may come and go. You might even get married and divorced, but those brothers will stay there. So I think friendship is a very important truth, even from a bit of a spiritual perspective, even from a bit of a Sanatani perspective. Uh, I spoke about this to Rajashe Nandi as well. Uh, The thing is, he spoke about how when you die, Hmm. technically your marriage also dies because one of the partners is dying. Correct. Uh, So even something as pure... And ultimate as marriage eventually collapses. Yes. But what stays with you throughout life are your friendships. Possibly you'll carry that into your next birth as well. Yeah. Maybe you'll carry your friendship with your wife from this birth into the next birth as well. But friendship trumps romance.
0: See, the more we evolve spiritually, the more important association becomes. Good company. They could be friends. They could be partners. They could be anything. And association. Sangha, company friendships are probably the most ignored aspect of spiritual life. See, if we are progressing spiritually, what do we need? We really only need three things. Shastra, Sadhana, Sangha. Shastra, scriptural knowledge, study, wisdom. Shastric wisdom can come from anywhere. We are now sharing it on YouTube. Shastra. Sadhana. Some practice needs to be there to allow that wisdom to take root. But what is it that keeps you on the path? What keeps you on the path is Sangha. We need relationships in our life that nurture us. We need relationships in our life that calm us when we are going through difficult things. We need relationships in our lives that soothe us. We need relationships in our life that give us the opportunity to serve them when they are going through their challenges. And yes, a romantic relationship or partner is extremely important. And finding the right partner is getting more and more difficult these days. But there's no fear. Certainly not as much fear in friendship as associated with finding a partner. Hmm. You find a friend, you're never like, is this the one? (laughs) Hmm. Okay, cool.
1: Uh, Let's talk about the stories.
0: So the stories of Sangha. Oh, there are so many, so many. There's one really... um, There's a story that really touched me. That um, we, I recently studied how to do very specific pujas. In that, there's the Navagraha Puja. Nine planets or nine celestial beings, the celestial bodies. Center of that is Surya and then you have Chandra, Shukra and so on. So all of the celestial bodies that we recognize. Shani. That everyone is so scared of. Just to be clear, sun,
1: moon, Venus, Mercury, uh, Mars, Saturn, Mars, Saturn, um, Rahu Ketu, Jupiter.
0: Yeah. So, sun, moon, Mars, Venus, um, Saturn, Jupiter, Rahu and Ketu, and there's one more which I'm missing. Mercury. Mercury. Ha. Mercury. Yes. So. Rahu and Ketu are very interesting.
1: What are Rahu and Ketu, celestially speaking?
0: So, uh, celestially speaking, they don't have a visible presence, which is what makes them very interesting. Because all of the other entities are entities that are there in the solar system. And solar system is now a Western phrase. But Saurya Mandal predates the idea of the sun being at the center of the solar system by several thousands of years. Now, in the Saurya Mandal we have Rahu and Ketu. Rahu and Ketu were um, originally one being that ended up being headless. So the head became one being and the body became another being. And this incident occurred during the churning of the ocean. So in Vishnu Puran there is an episode where auspiciousness, everything that is good disappears from creation, not just from the earth. So both the Devas and Asuras need something to bring it back. And they are facing into their own annihilation. So they want the nectar of immortality as the ultimate goal. So they go to Sri Vishnu and say we need to find this nectar of immortality. So Vishnu says, okay, I will be, I will take the form of a giant tortoise. On my back, place a mountain. On that, around that mountain, wrap a snake. On one side of the snake are the devatas, the other side of the snake are asuras. And start churning. So this Kshir Sagar, which we visualize as the ocean of milk, which is sometimes is referred to as the Milky Way as well as a cosmic celestial wow. presence and arrangement, um, in that the churning starts. So on one side the Devas are pulling, the other side the Asuras are pulling. So this sort of movement, and what ends up happening is from this ocean, through the process of churning, a number of things start to emerge. Now what is this? Bhagwan. In the form of Kurma, the um, tortoise, is the underlying reality that gives on which everything takes place. The mountain is our body. The snake is a spiritual possibility, Kundalini, that is yet to rise. Devas and Asuras are the Higher and lower tendencies in us that are pulling. And that churning that is happening in the ocean is the process of meditation from which things are starting to emerge. Mm. So the first thing that emerges is poison. Halal. And that poison is so terrible, so terrible that it gets into the eyes, into the lungs, you know, nobody can breathe. At that time, Bhagavan Shiva comes and he consumes that poison. And it is limited to his throat. Tells us two things. One is when we are going through the meditation process. The first thing that comes out is our inner poison. And most people get distracted at this point. Because they are like, oh, I can't believe this is in me. I thought I was a good person. And all these things, I am trying to do something good. I can't do it. And they give up. But You must know, and through these stories we know, first thing that comes out is poison. And that poison is choking us. When we we experience it, what to do with it? Give it to Bhagawan. Because Bhagawan is the only one who can consume it without being consumed by it. So offer it. When the poison comes, when the thoughts come, when the tendencies come in the seat of meditation, give it to Bhagawan. That is one thing. Second thing it teaches us is that now we see all these photos and videos of Bhagawan Shiv with charas and whatever else. What a ridiculous image. What a ridiculous idea. And if someone says, oh Shivji used to smoke, so I want to smoke, we should ask them, Shivji also consumed poison? You are willing to consume poison?
1: Mm.
0: Most people will say no. So that is part of the episode. As things go forward, other uh, other
1: things come out. Dhanvantari, the deity of Ayurveda, comes out through this process. One of the pre planned questions for me for this episode was about Dhanvantari. Okay, we might who, talk about it. Cool <laughs> that you're bringing it up. It's supposed to be in this podcast. Anyway, go on.
0: And when Dhanvantari comes, he's holding a kalash, a pot, which has the nectar of immortality. Okay. Now, when that nectar of immortality is uh, brought up, suddenly everyone wants it. They throw the snake, they throw the churning, they just rush after it. So Bhagawan Vishnu assumes the form of Mohini and holds that nectar. Mohini is one who enchants the entire universe. Anything that is created is enchanted by Mohini. So in enchanting everyone, Mohini ji says to the asuras, Hey, you were going, how can you just have this? Go have a purification bath and then come. So they go to have a bath. Amongst them, one person stays back. Disguises himself in the devata. And when, and starts to, the devata start to consume that amrit. And this person gets one drop. And as soon as he gets one drop, Vishnu realizes that it's not a deva. And he sends the chakra, cuts the head off. But that one drop, by the time, has gone it. And that asura, head that is removed, becomes one of them becomes Rahu and the other one becomes Ketu. Yeah? What does this tell us and what does this have to do with Sangha that we are talking about? It tells us that an Asura can be elevated to the level of a Deva and can get immortality. How? Not by by cheating and getting into the lion, but by keeping the company of those evolved beings. As a result of being in that company, Rahu and Ketu that was born as an Asura has been elevated. Now, one may believe That there are devas, asuras, head was cut off, nectar of immortality. But the fundamental idea is this. Good company can transform our lives. We have to only seek it out.
1: Okay. Uh, Whose company were you in for the past one year? You had something eventful that happened in your life. There's a lot that happened in the last one year. Um, Again, some small context on what mm -hmm. you are professionally yeah uh for people who are seeing you for the first time we've done two episodes but there may may be audiences who've not seen the older episodes yeah and it's been a moment and the channel has grown so much so I um
0: work as a managing director at a bank in the UK uh I head up strategy for the UK's largest commercial bank uh it's a lot of fun and um I've lived in the uk for the last 18 years The last few weeks in india have probably been the longest that i've been in india since i was a uh, since i was in my teenagers uh alongside all of that i have been uh, a practitioner of uh, hinduism in its most general sense uh all my life but specifically since i was at university so that process is also now 16 or 17 years old um and it has made a huge, almost, I would say fundamental contribution to who I am today, both in my inner space as well as the work that I do and what I have achieved professionally. So to put it in very simple terms, I am there, I am here professionally because of Dharma, and it's a service of Dharma that has made me. So one interesting thing that happened this year is that that service of Dharma took a outward facing form in the sense that whatever insights that i had from my practice and life experiences i used to absorb in myself and keep to myself and in covid there was a small bhagavad gita group that we started and that group then encouraged me to start putting it on instagram at which point we had a conversation i think in september of last year uh, and we had another conversation at the end of last year when i was in mumbai And then off of the back of that, we launched a new YouTube channel speaking about first the Bhagavad Gita. Going in depth, exploring it from a very practical perspective. How can millennials, how can Gen Z people apply this knowledge in their lives? And we found in depth scriptural references to challenges that we have today. Mm. Like anxiety, like anger, like NoFap, Brahmacharya. We made Mm. three videos with exact detailed scriptural references from Bhagavad Gita. So the mm. idea was, let's not make this text intimidating. Let's make it accessible. And let's make it as an entry point. So people understand if they want to go deeper, there are many organizations that can take, take it deeper. Mm. But it's intimidating. So we started with Bhagavad Gita. And earlier this year, we also started Hanuman Chalisa. So one, one, Chopaya of the Hanuman Chalisa, we are explaining in detail and linking it back to the fundamental ideas, the foundations of Hinduism. Who is Bhagawan? Who am I? What is my relationship with the divine? What is the nature of karma? How do I evolve? How do I manifest? How do I overcome the challenges in life? So that's been a very, very wonderful journey. Why were you in Kerala? (laughs) So you've jumped a few months ahead. So I've spent the last two and a half months in Kerala. Uh, I've taken a sabbatical from work to be able to do this. Uh, I was at an ashram that is maintained by Chinmaya Mission. Been associated with the chinmaya mission many years. My spiritual journey, in one sense, 17 years ago, started with them. And um I they used to run this course to teach you how to become a pandit for six months. They used to teach you all the pujas, all the vedis in detail. Now, this has been an area of interest for me for pretty much my entire life. Let's take a small pause. How many pujas are there? As many as you want there to be. So I'll give you a a basic um, idea. There are multiple manifestations of the divine that are worshipped in specific ways. Okay. Now, Adi Shankaracharya, who is one of the foundational pillars of Hinduism as we see it today, had um, proposed a path called Mata where there are six manifestations of the divine that are worshipped as access to the highest. Shiva, Vishnu, Devi, Ganapati, Kumara and Surya. What is Kumara? Kumara is uh, Skanda. Okay. Kartikeya. Kartikeya, exactly. So six. uh, These are, and of course, they have their own manifestations. So each of these deities have their own specific pujas. In addition to these pujas, You have Navagraha Pujas that are undertaken for, um, for any auspicious activity. Right? And that includes Rahu and Ketu as we were talking about. In addition to that, you have what are known as Havans or Homas. Now Havans and Homas are performed again in worship of these deities. And you also have Yagyas which sometimes are used interchangeably with Havans and Homas, but they are not. They are much more detailed there's a, there's a very, very uh, deep and rigorous process that goes into performing a yagya that takes multiple days, multiple people, which one person doing a homa can never achieve. Yeah. and So like a havan is a micro yagya? In one respect, yes. Both involve fire and invocation of fire and offerings into the fire. But a yagya can take multiple days. A yagya requires the yajmans to be married. Homa doesn't require the yajmans to be married.
1: Yajmans? Yajmans
0: are the people who are
1: participating.
0: Who, are, yeah, who have sponsored it, for lack of a better phrase. Okay. Homa doesn't require for the yajmans to be married. Yagya requires for them to be married. Homa, you can take the Agni from your diya, Or you can even, not that people do it that much. Normally, you just take it from your diya and lie it from there. Yagya to produce Agni, there is a very specific process and instrument that is required. You have to kindle that wood and create that flame. You cannot just take it from somewhere else. In a proper Yagya, the entire Yagya Shala is burnt at the end of it. The entire Yagya Shala, the entire venue, in, which has bamboos and thatched roofs and everything. And it's huge. It's got multiple spaces. That whole thing is set. All right. And people assume that this no longer happens in India because it's so, deli- uh, so detailed, but it does. Where does it happen? Is there, wherever there is very detailed Tantra practice in particular, there this type of Yagya takes place. I know of one that took place in Kerala uh, not too long ago. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to visit because I was in London. But my dream is to go once at least to
1: experience okay. that. Um. Speaking about Tantra practice now, I think even the listeners are actually kind of educated on it <laughs> because of all the the episodes. But basically when someone does a normal mantra, you're getting some sort of spiritual progress. When yes. you meditate using that mantra, you get deeper spiritual progress. And there are certain mantras which are even more powerful. So, Is it fair to say that a Havan is a much larger bomb of progress and then a yagna? how do you say it? Yagya. Yagya uh, is a An atom bomb of progress.
0: You can say that. You can say that. And what I will say is these are processes that are worth experiencing rather than understanding it theoretically. Because then what the words that we use just now, they actually become an inner experience. The level of opening that takes place inside is very, very different. So for example, I've been performing pujas for many years now. But I learned how to perform a havan recently. And I'll tell you, the experience of performing a havan is very different from the experience of performing a puja. Not that I'm saying it's more advanced. It's just the level of connect and the presence of the divine that is much, much more palpable in a havan than what you experience in a puja. Why? Because we invoke the deity in the fire. Now, the fire is not something that is visualized. The fire exists. The fire is producing a certain amount of heat. The fire is producing a certain amount of light. The fire is creating an immediate reaction in us because we are sitting next to it. We are also sweating. We also, we achieve that luster of that sweat and you know, the light of the fire starts to reflect in our face. And inside the energy of that fire catches root.
1: And what takes place inside is very difficult to describe. You're seeing the same energy of the fire that causes all these external visual and feeling-based changes reaches whatever's inside your mind and heart as well yes. and creates changes there. Almost like it's cooking up your soul in some way. The ultimate truth in Hinduism is visualized as a flame,
0: as light, as life-giving. And this isn't just me making it up. In the Kathopanishad it is said... That I am not able to see the sun, the moon, the stars. None of these lights are visible to me until and unless I have touched that light within. And having touched that, I am able to see, experience know everything. So, if in Hinduism, the truth is a flame of knowledge, or knowledge is a flame, then that flame is burning bright in front of us, and we get to experience it in the process of a havan.
1: Okay. Um little tangential question. Kanji. A pujari who's performing these pujas and havans and yagnas regularly. Mm-hmm. Sorry, yajnas regularly. Yeah. Uh what changes in that Pujari's reality? So firstly, you can say Yagya,
0: you can say Yagnya also. Because it's Sanskrit is Nya. So people, some say Yagya, some say Yagnya. I say Yagya just because it's easier to pronounce in English. But wow. in Sanskrit, if you're speaking in Hindi, I would say yajna. Yagnya. What changes for the Pujari? What changes for the Pujari is, I mean, they can achieve the highest reality as a result of these processes. If that is their goal. Sometimes we do the karma, we do these pujas, we do the havans purely to chal karna hai. You might do it as a means to an end. You know, if I'm doing one for you and you are paying me, i will be like, let's do it and then I get paid and then I can do whatever I want to do with that money. Or it might be that I'm so familiar with it, I just do what needs to be done, get, get done with the process and, and move forward. But someone who is doing it properly, to achieve the right energetic outcome, one has to invest a certain amount of our energy into the process. And one cannot invest the energy without having a clear idea of why we are doing this. And that why needs to be aligned actually with the purpose of the puja. I cannot do this puja for say, say for example, if someone's having a health problem and they ask me to do a puja for them. I cannot just say... I'm getting money for this, that's why I'm doing it. No, for the puja to have an effect, I have to connect with solving the health problem for that person. It's not that I'm going to solve the health problem, but I have to create the energetic preconditions. If I don't create that energetic condition, and I take the payment, and I just do the puja, then I am accruing bad karma. So anyone with a decent understanding of karma won't do that.
1: Hmm.
0: Okay?
1: You can continue on your... Pujari 101.
0: So, uh, Ch- Chinmay Mission used to do this course for um, for six months it used to be. And they had only really done it twice to the best of my knowledge in the last sort of 15, 16 years. But the teacher is a true master of this. And for many years, I wanted to do it. And I used to keep looking at their website, their Instagram pages. When will they announce Then finally, at the end of last year, I somehow managed to pull the contact details of someone in that ashram. And I got in touch with them and said, look, I live in London. I'm very interested in the subject. You don't look like you're having a course for some time. Can I just come and stay at the ashram? And I will serve in the ashram, but just please teach me. And that person said, oh, by the way, we are having a two-month course. We're not going to do the six-month version. We'll do it over two months.
1: Why did you want to do it?
0: So the why in me is a really difficult question to answer because it comes from a place that is not in the conscious mind. It's not a thought that oh, I want to have this plan, then I'm going to do this. I'm going to. It's just a inner calling to do something. And actually, my connection through Hinduism is through puja. We used to have, we have still Ganesh puja at home every Ganesh Chaturthi, and I'm very blessed to be born in a family that has been performing this puja. In, not in the decades, but in the centuries. It's hmm. been more than 100 years in Mumbai at least. And a long time before that, when our lineage was originally in Goa. So when I was uh, two years old, um, this puja was happening at home and I wanted to participate. I was watching it. And so obviously people held me back because you, know, you can't let a two-year-old in front of lights and lamps and all of that. So I was held back from this puja. And in the afternoon, when everyone went to sleep, I decided now is my time to do my own puja. So I took the flowers, put it in the oil, <laughs> took the water, offered it, took the chandan, you know, I just threw it everywhere. And I was, And when they woke up, I was just sat in there, surrounded by flowers, with chandan on my head and everything. Absolutely delighted in myself. Mm-hmm. And that's when my family realized, my parents realized, that next year onwards this to be puja ke liye mm. So I was three years old when I started doing Ganesh Puja. Mm. And then it reached a point about uh, more than six six years ago or something that I started doing it on my own. But what had happened is I had this knowledge of Vedanta, of the scriptures, that I had obtained about starting about 16, 17 years ago. And then I had a separate understanding of puja and the process. And I had a certain inner experience from performing those pujas. But those two was, it was difficult to reconcile. I mean, I could have used my own uh, understanding to do that. But it's different when you have an authorized master teaching you, this is the process, this is the meaning, this is the experience that it means. it is meant to generate. This is the philosophical understanding that one should have when performing the puja. Like what? For example, in any puja, there are three or four stages of the Puja. The first stage is Purvanga Puja. Then you have, where you it's a preparatory stage. Then you have Avahanam, which is the invite of the deity to come. Where there is a specific process that the Pujari has to undergo, which involves their own chakra. I don't want to use the word awakening, because that now means something very different on the internet. But utilization of Energy through their chakras wow. to be able to invoke the deity in the vigraha, in the form that we see in front of us. That is the second stage. The third stage is the um, upachar. Upachar can be five panchopachar, can be sixteen shodashopachar, or it could be even as many as we want. Upachars are offerings. So you offer the deity flowers, uh, uh, pushpamala. Har, uh, you offer them clothes, Vastram, angavastram. you offer them water you offer them Chandan and so on so each of these offerings are done and the final one is Uttar Puja which is you know, normally when we have Aarti and uh, Karpur Aarti and Pushpanjali and all of these things and we thank the deity for coming so those are the four broad phases of the Puja now you asked me about the mood in which the Puja is done now the mood is set in the Purvanga Puja itself there is a part of the process called Atma Puja. Atma Puja s- tells us how the pujari, in what inner space the pujari is going to be when performing the puja. And
1: it's different for every puja? No, it's the same.
0: But I'm holding back on giving all the information because some of this has to be practiced to be understood. But I'll give it in brief. Your Atma Puja can also be of great depth. See, each of the stages of the puja can be done in huge amount of detail. You can do a puja in 30 minutes. You can do a puja in 3 hours. You can do a puja in 3 days also, if you want. So, the Atma Puja step is similar. This can go into as much depth as you want. There are very specific processes of meditation where you see the presence of the divinity in your heart but ordinarily if we are doing atma puja there is a very beautiful mantra that is chanted mm-hmm. deho devalaya prokto jivo deva Sanatanaha. Tyajed agnyan nirmalyam soham napuja pujayet deha body devalaya prokto is a temple devalaya who is the deity in the temple jeeva individualized jeeva deva is deva when not now not while doing the puja not when they reach realization sanatana has always been divine the inner space of the person performing the puja has always been divine so therefore why is how do they perform this puja Tyajed agnyan nirmalyam by Releasing the waste product of a jnana, which is ignorance. Soham bhavena pujaet. Soham, you have been doing this soham meditation for many years. Soham is I am that, I am the supreme reality. With that bhava, I undertake the puja. So, a seasoned practitioner will aim to undertake the puja as a process of connecting their current identity, which is, you know, Om, Ranveer, whoever else, Pujari, banker turned Pujari. They want to connect that, they want to almost discard that identity and identify with the Supreme. It's two very simple examples. One is when I'm doing a Havan, I lose, even when I do a Havan, I always explain what is going to happen at the start of the Havan. And I tell everyone that this is the process. Some of what I've already shared, there's a Purvanga Puja and so on. I share some details about how we invoke the deity into the fire. And I say to them, I'm giving you this information now. As we go along, I may explain a little, but at one point, the Kriya will take over. And I won't explain it. And what happens in that process is that um, the I lose track of the room. I lose track of everyone apart from the puja and the Agni. And one interesting thing happened recently when we did a uh, did havan for Maha Ashtami in Navratri. We did a Durga Havan. I said to the people who were there, that Havan is very interesting because we get to experience the presence of the Divine in the Agni. That when you offer Nevedya to a Vigraha, for example, the Vigraha consumes the Vigraha as in what we normally call a murti, But Vigraha has its own meaning. Vishesh Graha means the home of the Divine, a special home for the Divine is created in that form so that the Divine can reside there and it's energized. So, When we do Vigraha Puja and offer Naivedya to it, food to it, the Vigraha is consuming that food in its pranic form. So we say, consume this food, look at this food, we draw its attention to the food and then we offer it, each of the pranas, prana-aswa, panaya when we are doing Havan, we are actually offering the food into the Agni, so the deity is directly consuming the food, not just its pranic element. And I said this, I was like, the presence of the deity can be seen. When you, sometimes when you look at the picture of the divine, you will see that form in the fire. And there was someone there who didn't believe me. And then we did the whole Kriya. They experienced what had to be experienced. And at the end of it, when someone, whoever, there was someone who took pictures, uh, you know, multiple people, were there; they all took pictures. There was one picture in which clearly you could see Devi. In fact, it's there on my Instagram. There's Devi is there in a photo. And in the middle, there's the Havan kund, And the last remnants of the fire are there. You can see clearly that the same form of Devi in the photo is the same form in the fire. With a khadga with a sword and sat on a lion and so on. So these experiences are there. That's, And I'm sharing this because other people have also experienced it. So that is one thing that happens. Second thing, one uh, people say to me, that when I'm performing a puja, especially when it goes into the more intense stages of it, like you know later in the puja, my face becomes very stony. Like it becomes almost expressionless. And someone asked me why. And this is a person who has watched me do puja for many years. And someone who I consider close to me. And I had to share to them that your, our experience of who we are, loosens the presence of the deity takes over so much that actually we have to work extra hard to hold ourselves together.
1: Mm-hmm. So
0: when I do Ganesh Puja, for example, Ganesh Chaturthi, the day after, day before, I do it with the idea of communing with Bhagawan in a way where Bhagawan comes, Bhagawan is served. Everyone else who comes, they are served. But my communion is those two days which powers the remaining 363 days to then come back for two more days of Ranishad Vati.
1: The reason I'm asking you about all these things in so much depth is because not every listener who's listening to this is going to perform pujas with the intensity that you do. Yeah. But I'm sure that people can gain something for the pujas that they perform at home from this conversation. Definitely. At least from an emotional perspective or an intention perspective. Yeah.
0: The point of puja is not to transact with Bhagawan. People say, I'm doing this puja for this purpose. Fine, we can have an intention, we can have a sankalpa, we can aim to manifest it. But we're not transacting that I will give you 100 coconuts, give me me a house. People say, I'll give you 100 coconuts, give me a house. What is the value of a house? What is the value of 100 coconuts? And Bhagavan has provided everything. Doesn't need coconuts from us. Mm. Doesn't need sweets from us. Doesn't need gold from us even. What Bhagavan needs from us is bhava. Are you willing to give yourself through the puja? Are you able to recognize the presence of divinity? And through that recognition offer. That is the purpose of puja. See, one need not do elaborate pujas. If one has the ability to sit for pujas, has the desire, has the love for it, is able to take that level of energy, please do it. But not everyone else can do it. So the basic puja is pancho pachara. Five Upacharas, five offerings, okay. But those five offerings, which are water, uh, chandan, flowers, dhupa, and deeper light, these five offerings have deep metaphysical truths in it. And when we offer, we are offering not just the object but the meaning behind it. So the five Offerings, pancha, panchopachar, represent pancha mahabhuta, the five elements, and we offer those five elements, and we recognize that those five elements have come from the divine and are merging back. So there's the div- there's an independent divine presence from which five elements arise. This entire world comes. We offer those back, and then the entire creation merges into that divine. So when we offer water, jalam, so five, one of the five elements, earth. Is represented by Gandham, by Chandan, by sandalwood. So when we offer the offer Chandan, we say that we will work in such a way. We, hum jayenge, we might get eroded, but we will spread our fragrance and the divinity and the greatness of the divine around us that people will benefit. So that with that bhava, we offer chandan, which represents the earth. Pushpam flowers represent space. Akash. How? Because they uh, space is unmanifest for a period of time, becomes manifest and then changes form again. In the same way, the flower is a bud for a period of time, becomes a flower, then gets pollinated and becomes a fruit. So that process with that bhava of saying something is there, it's not there tomorrow, it'll come back the day after. With that entire cycle is sustained by the divine offer of flowers. Then you have, Dhupa. Dhupa represents Vayu. Vayu is the um, wind element. Dhupa is like agarbatti. Dhupa is agarbatti. You get agarbatti. There's, uh, Dhupa. Agarbatti. Very interesting. Is a type of. Originally, it was called agaru. Is a type of wood that used to be burnt and used to get used to get fragrance from it that used to be cut into very small splinters. So it became, it was then called Agarubatti. And Agarubatti now has become Agarbatti. And a lot of Agarbattis you get are made of chemicals and all that. But that's a separate discussion. Anyway, naturally fragrant, things that occur in nature that are naturally fragrant when burnt, we offer to the divine. See, this represents Vayu. And the idea is again, That we will live our lives in such a way that we may get rid of ourselves and our ego. It completely disappears into ash, but the process of doing that will benefit others. And finally, we have Agni, which we know as knowledge. So that Agni we take in the form of Arti and show and use it to see the Divine. And again, it's the same principle. Tameva bhanta manubhati sarvam. Knowing with this knowledge, only I am able to see the Divine. And so it's not just. So that, you know, we offer it and Nazarudar, that's an element of it. We energize it. That's an element of it. But it is also to truly see Bhagawan, we need knowledge. So this deep philosophy is embedded in the process of puja and simply five offerings can help us live that.
1: Okay. This answers the age-old question that children ask their parents <laughs> in India while performing pujas. Why are we doing this? And the parents usually say, Chup kar kar. <laughs> this is the actual answer. Yeah.
0: And you know, I I used to have that with my parents as well. And for one time, I sort of resented these answers. I said, why aren't you telling, you know, why don't you know? If you don't know, then you can't tell. Why? And I realized one thing.
1: There was no podcast back then. Yes. Yes. <laughs> That's the actual. See,
0: what happened? Our grandparents' generation fought for the independence of Bharat.
1: Mm. They
0: Mm. had to do what they had to do to gain freedom for us. Our parents' generation fought to be independent in Bharat. They were focused on survival through this entire license Raj, and where every every person that stood out was hammered back in. The Mm. nail that stands out should be hammered back in. That was the idea in their generation. They could not focus on anything but survival. We are the first generation of Bharatiya's in hundreds of years who have the opportunity not just to survive but to thrive. Goosebumps. That's so true. And our culture, our Sanatan Sanskriti that is timeless. I won't even say thousands of years old. That is timeless. Gives us the means to thrive.
1: <sighs> okay what is sanatan dharma
0: sanatan dharma
1: i i also want to say uh-huh. before i let you begin is that and i hate saying this online but because of the political climate of our times even the word sanatan dharma is a dangerous word to use on the internet for a mainstream brand like myself and that's so sad i mean i know what sanatan dharma is i'm asking for the sake of the podcast and to obviously increase my knowledge about it. But I've literally been advised by media professionals not to say the word dharma because it'll term me as right-wing. Just let me live, guys. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the and... opponents of dharma have
0: always been there regardless of which age we live. Even in Yoga, there were opponents of dharma. Even in Treta Yuga when Bhagavan Sri Ram came, there were opponents of Dharma. In Dwapar Yuga, Bhagavan Shri Krishna had to re-establish Dharma because people were hell-bent on destroying Dharma. And today in the Kali Yuga, you cannot say the word Dharma without someone jumping down our neck yeah. and calling
1: us names. You know, I'm literally told I'll lose brand associations if I say the word Sanatana There is a deep core of Sanatana Bharat
0: that wants to hear the word Sanatan and understand it. That live it in their heart but are afraid to say it on their lips. This conversation and conversations like these is intended to empower those Bharatiyas.
1: Okay. Uh, one caveat I want to just place here is that while we're talking about Sanatan Dham, uh, I hope that it's clear that we're not anti any religion. Okay. Because the one thing that I do know about Sanatandam... is that it's extremely subjective. Based on... The, the life experiences... and the mindset of the... practitioner yeah. of Sanatandam. Mm-hmm. The one thing that I've learned about Sanatandam... for me... and of course this might be a... trickle down of my own personality... into my understanding of Sanatandam... but I believe in universal love... Yeah. even more than I believe in... my land and my own culture. If I'm talking about Sanatandam... It doesn't mean that I'm looking down upon Islam or Christianity or Judaism or Sikhism or Buddhism or Jainism or anything like that. I was born into a Sanatani family. I'm just trying to understand my own roots better yeah. with respect for all other faiths and not thinking that my faith is better or worse than any other faith. And,
0: you know, I because I work in banking, one of the nice things about banking, which I really enjoy, I love what I do for work, uh, is that we are very precise in our use of language. If something is, say if we're talking about growth, then we know exactly what is meant by growth. There's no distinction between percent and percentage points. It's very clear that this is what it is. If we're talking about profit, it is exactly clear what it is. If we're talking about cost, it's exactly clear what it is. So the first thing that we need to do in this discussion is define our terms. So before we go into the philosophy of it as well, Sanatan means eternal. Dharma comes from dharyate-iti-dharma. That which upholds, that which allows things to be, enables things to be their essential nature is Dharma. And in Sanatana Dharma, the idea is that the essential nature of everything that is manifest, every person, every being, every situation is divine. That there is an underlying divine consciousness. That is both soaked through in this manifest creation that we see and also independent from it. It's so almost like this creation is a projection on the screen that is this reality. This reality is called Brahman in its unmanifest form. Uh, so, Sanatan Dharma. Sanatan has its meaning which is eternal, timeless. Dharma Dharyate Iti Dharma. And religion comes from the Latin word which means to reconnect. So, sometimes when we use words in English, they lose their essential meaning. Mm. Yeah. So, say for example, if we take the manifestation of religion today, non-Dharmic religions, okay, which in which are born outside of India, have a similar structure. Obviously, they have great depth of their own. They've got their own... Um, approaches towards the inner space and so on. But there's a broad structure that is relatively um, uh, replicable in some ways, which is that there's a prophet, there is a book, uh, there is a series of sort of directives, and there is a theology around that, around the meaning of life, who is the divine, how to connect with the divine, what are the meditative processes. So there are relatively bounded elements. Okay. Sanatana Dharma is not like that. Sanatana Dharma is, I visualize Sanatana Dharma as like a mother with open arms that embraces her children in all of their manifestations. So in Sanatana Dharma, we have multiple different theologies. And not only do they coexist, but they Recognize the validity of others. What does that mean? Within Hinduism, we have a theology that is called Vaishnavism, which says Vishnu is supreme. Within that, we will have people who say Krishna is supreme. Within that, we will say people who have Ram is supreme. Then you have another separate one, Shaivism. Shiva is supreme. You have a separate one which is Shaktism, Shaktapath, which says Devi is supreme. But they are not sitting here at war with each other. Why? Because all of those multiple different theologies, not the best word in the world because it's got its own connotations but we are speaking English so we use it. Limitations of the English language. Exactly. All of these different theologies are connected by the Vedas and a wider body of Hindu scripture that includes the Upanishads, Puranas and uh, Itihasas. And all of these different theologics, theologies will buy into those. And as a result, they are nourished by it. And because this is a dharma of principles, not a religion of rules, those principles have been re-established over and over again based on the time and period. In the Treta Yuga, we needed a Rama to come. In the Dwapar Yug, we needed a Shri Krishna to come. Each, our religion survives and remains connected to its foundational Vedic principles because we have the ability to regenerate. Otherwise, what attacks Hindu Dharma, Sanatana Dharma has faced? How much has been destroyed? You know, I said Shaivism, Vaishnavism, Ganapatya, Shakti part. This Saurya part. See, Surya is the supreme. That what is left of that now is Chhat Puja. That happens in Bihar and Uttar Pradesh and Why? that part of the country. But, and there used to be great Surya temples. Konark in Orissa. Modera in Gujarat. Martand in Kashmir. But lost over time. There is, of course, there's Surya worship. Uh, I've also learned the puja when I was in Kerala.
1: You know, you said the phrase, so much has been destroyed. The phrase that drops into my head the moment I hear that is, so much will be rebuilt. I think in our lifetimes. I think by people like us. Our generation of Sanatanis. Not to feed my own ego or your ego or our ego through this. I just feel it's Sanatani duty, almost. To rebuild things. We,
0: When we serve... Dharma. Dharma
1: nourishes us.
0: Dharma protects us. People ask me, oh, you know, you're doing Dharma Raksha. I said, me? I don't have the ability to stand in front of Dharma and say, I'm a Raksha. I'm doing Dharma Seva. Yeah. And through Dharma Seva, Dharma is protecting. me. And we should understand why we should do Dharma Seva. We should not do Dharma Seva because just because we are born into a certain um, into a certain Framework. We should do Dharma Seva because Dharma addresses the essential questions of life. Why are we here? How do we have relationships? How do we navigate the challenges that come through? How do I deal with anxiety? How do I keep focused on my goal? How do I deal with heartbreak? All of these things are addressed by dharma, and at each level in addressing it, it lifts our perspective. Dharma is something that is not just spoken in the peace of this podcast studio. It is not just spoken of in the quietitude of the Himalayas, in the serenity of an ashram in the forest. No, dharma is something that serves us even on the battlefield of Kurukshetra, where horses are neighing, elephants are trumpeting, conches are blowing, swords are rattling. In the middle of all of that, Arjuna can completely break down and surrender to Bhagawan and Bhagawan will deliver the message of Dharma. That Dharma will serve him, not just in that battle, but continues to serve us in the battles of our lives 5,000 years later.
1: Yeah, You know, I've had a blessed experience doing this show in general. This episode included, but I've had Palgarin Pochi who spoke about Buddhist thought. I've not had a Jain monk yet. The intention is to have Jain monk but I've discussed Jainism with some of my Jain friends. I've had some Sikhi experts. Mm-hmm. These are all Indic religions. They originated out of our land. I personally feel in so many ways they're all connected to each other so deeply. Of course, currently there are political differences, etc. Uh, the masses often look at it as you versus me. I'm not saying all of the masses but sections of the masses want to fight more than they want to build bridges. Uh, But in truth, the Indic religions are all deeply connected to each other. There's deep brotherhood.
0: There is a great Jain master by the name of Sri Rakesh Bhai Zaveri, who is based in Mumbai. He he speaks in Gujarati. uh, In his Pravachans, obviously he can speak English and he's a very erudite speaker in English as well. But his Pravachans on the Bhagavad Gita, on Narada Bhakti Sutra, on Ashtabhakar Gita, on Bhaja have helped me understand Hindu texts. Deeply. And actually, I, I used to listen to his talks on Narad Bhakti Sutra, for example. Then I used to go and read my guru, Swami Chinmananda's commentary, and they were the same. Mm. Yeah, so yes, there, is, there are doctrinary differences. I'll give you one example. This bell that we have here, This is a Buddhist bell, right? It's a Tibetan Buddhist bell. And what what is a distinguishing feature of this bell is that there is a space over here in the middle, right? There are spaces over here. This represents Shunyata, absence. In Hinduism, we will, even though it's a beautifully created bell and it has a lovely sound, we would not use this for puja. Why? Because we don't believe in Shunyata. That shunyata we see as purnata, That where there is nothing, there is the possibility of everything. Now, very narrow, very narrow spiritual difference. But an important spiritual difference. Right? Does that stop us having this over here? Does that stop us appreciating its beauty? Does that stop us having a meditative experience when whoever gifted this to, I think it's Palgarin Poche, when he uses it in his worship? No. We see that beauty. And one of the things that all spiritualists must bear in mind is that the goal of our spirituality is to overcome our ego, not to create a new ego that I'm a spiritual person. And it's a very sharp razor's edge to walk. Because the moment we start to say, I am spiritual, we are in danger of losing ourselves. Mm. And I'll tell you this from personal experience. I, there was a period of three or four days after a long period of meditation where I came out, I came out of that period of meditation, came back to Mumbai, uh, came back into the city environment. And I, for whatever reason, I started using the phrase, I am a creator with regards to the work that I do on YouTube, the seva that I do on YouTube. And immediately, my entire focus, just, it was like someone pulled a plug and everything just drained out. Why? Because I used to always use the phrase, I am a seeker. The point of doing this is to seek and to continue seeking. I am not even I te- I wouldn't even say I am a teacher. Definitely not a creator. I am a seeker and I am seeking in public. And all of us as spiritualists must bear in mind and really walk this path so that we don't create a new spiritual ego because that will get so close to the finish line and
1: hold ourselves back from crossing it. Okay. I want to go back to that question I was asking about the chakras and the planes. I was actually Ji. getting to another question. Haji. But the chakras and the planes thing was just a small yeah. context. So so,
0: <laughs> so, we called all of the schools of philosophy. Of those schools of philosophy, yoga is where
1: chakras are mostly dealt with. Okay. Okay. Uh, the question I was going for was actually about those planes Haji. of existence. Yeah. Which I believe I've spoken to Gauranga Das Prabhu yeah. about as well. And each of those planes is governed by a different deity. Ajay. Like the plane from which you get your root chakra is governed by Ganpati. Yeah. Uh, and then I don't remember the exact yeah, yeah. allocation of different deities. But each chakra is governed by a different deity. Yeah. Okay. The reason I'm even bringing this up. One is that it's a cool kind of uh, thing yeah. to bring up. The second reason is... Um, through Nandi and through all the tantra conversations. I've realized how alive the deities are. Yeah. How they have their own thought. I would go as far as saying... Intention or wishes. Mm -hmm. Uh, They have their own... Sense of... Consciousness. Okay. So my question is... Take all these deities. Ganpati. Vishnu. Shiva. Kartikeya. You name it. They're all definitely conscious of the fact that all these Sanatani people in this landmass that we call India are currently waking up to Sanatan Dharma again. The thing is, we are possibly waking up to it because of our life experiences. You were born in the family, you were born, I was born in the family, I am born, you've had childhood experiences, I've had childhood experiences. Now at age 35 and 30, we are together discussing our own experiences. But those experiences were also put into our life by the deities. That's Mm -hmm. why we are who we are. So, parallelly with India rising as an economy, I know that the deities have had a role to play there as well. Yeah. Right? Because as Bhagawan says, not even a leaf that falls is without my My intention. So, So, everything that's happening in our material plane right now is happening because something else is happening on all those spiritual planes. Yeah. Have you ever wondered about what these deities are thinking about where India is right now?
0: Now... Deities are not just multiple independent beings that are looking down on us. There are some philosophical schools that believe that. But what I have studied as an Advaitin, Advaitic Vedantin is that the truth is one. In fact, not only is the truth one, the truth alone is that manifests as everything. So various... And that truth is known as Brahman. That Brahman resides in all of our hearts and gives us life in in our hearts it is known as paramatma and based on our requirements our temperament our tendencies manifests as a personal form of divinity that is known as bhagavan so what brahman manifesting for me as ganesha may manifest for you as shri krishna that doesn't mean that shri krishna and ganesha are different are separate so there is a divine play at work that is always bringing disorder to order. That is always bringing agyanata to jnana, And sometimes that is done through the process of enlightenment. Sometimes that is done through the process of danda, punishment. And these cycles continue. So, we are now in a process, I feel, of great change. And We can see it in our life experiences, in the world around us. There's so much that is changing in a matter of months that would have taken decades to change in previous ages. So, as that change continues, there is divine energy that powers it. Those who are able to tap into that divine energy then are potentially the drivers of the change. But equally, there is an energy that takes us towards chaos. That, and there are a lot of people who prefer chaos to order, who benefit from chaos. There are players in financial markets that like crashes because they make money when crashes occur. And so this has
1: always been a, a game from okay. Satyug till now. Okay. Um, for the sake of understanding better, I'm going to reference a historical character. Uh-huh. I'm going to talk about Duryodhan. Ji. If Duryodhan was an actual human, which I believe he was. Yes. If the deities were creating the path for the Pandavas. Yeah. Specifically Shri Krishna. ji If he was guiding the Pandavas. What higher energy was Duryodhan being guided by? And another way of asking this question is. So say for TRS. Mm-hmm. When I'm trying to grow it. Yeah. I know the message and the intention I'm trying to put out. Yeah. I'm trying to popularize Sanatani thought in many ways. Because I feel generations of Indians before me were not able to. Yeah. Even if they wanted to. Now I have technology, I will amplify Sanatani philosophy. Yes. Because it's helped me.
0: Yeah.
1: I also face opposition. Yeah. I'm not asking you about the opposition. I'm asking about the energy that is... Making the opposition become my opposition. Yeah.
0: We'll we'll do it. I'll answer it in two halves. We'll do the Duryodhan example specifically because this question comes up a lot. That's a really good question. Then we'll talk about TRS and where we are right now.
1: I've also spoken about this earlier on the show. This is what a lot of people call Satan. Satan. Or yeah. evil in the world. Yeah. Like where there is light, there is also darkness. Yeah. And where light is trying to grow, darkness will try to pull it down. Yeah.
0: And the Sanskrit word for that... Or the phrase for that is, uh, "Shreyaans Karamat vigna bahuda." So there are many barriers, vignas, in good work. Okay. Now, if we look at Duryodhan, Duryodhan and Arjun, at their core, were enlivened by the same divine principle, Paramatma. They were the same divinity resided in Duryodhan as it did in Arjun. But Duryodhan was a collection of karma that had come down to him as his Prarabdha and were reinforced by the choices that he made in life that took him down that path. The divinity, divine Bhagavan, deities, nobody guided him to that path. In fact, what facilities Arjun had, same facilities Duryodhan also had. They had the same Guru, They had the same Bhishma Pitamaha. Same. Bhishma Pitamaha was an enlightened master. He gave us Vishnu Sahasranam. So the same access, same access to Bhagavan Sri Krishna. Parshuram was also there in Bharat at that time. And they also had good relationships with um, Balabhadra. And so, in the same circumstances... Two people end up in two different ways. Why? Because of their choices. And because people of influence make poor choices that have, mul- have multiplied impacts on society, the divine needs to manifest and set that right. Not just Duryodhana, the same thing happened with Ravan, the same thing happened n number of times with Dashavatars. and there are other avatars of other deities also that have ended up Performing the same purpose, uh, fulfilling the same purpose. So the core is divine. But what causes people to act that way is not the deities trying to engineer it like puppet masters, Mm. but the choices that those beings are making. Now, if you come to the current scenario, we have not just been born in this age, we have been born multiple times in previous ages in different genders, in different countries, in different cultures. But what has got us to this point is some desire in our hearts, as you say, to spread the message of Sanatan. And spread, why to spread the Sanatan message? Why? Because it serves humanity. Not because I'm flogging a certain brand of philosophy. Yeah, because truly it has uplifted me it has uplifted everyone I've seen around. And, out, and has, there's evidence to say that it has uplifted generations of people before. So that desire has always been there. It has grown in our heart. And today, that desire has fructified into a mechanism that allows us to fulfill that purpose. And if you see, the most enduring work is those act without ego. Some of the most enduring work in humanity was created when there were no podcasts, there was no communication. Christ, for example, was nailed to the cross. And on that cross, he was able to say, forgive them Lord for they know not what they do. Do you think he was identified with that body that was nailed? And because of that lack of identification, His thought process continues for thousands of years. Krishna, when he gave the Bhagavad Gita, did not sign it off made by Krishna. It was given, fully identified with the Divine, not with this physical manifestation at all. And that message of the Bhagavad Gita resonates still today. Not just the message, but even the activities. And so, if you look at the journey of just of TRS, of your specific journey, we've been doing it for eight, nine years now. Nine years later, oh, yeah, yes, there are many ways you are the same person. But in many fundamental ways, you are no longer that, the man that started this journey. And because you have been willing to let go of that version of you that no longer serves your purpose in life, Not only have you been able to grow inside, but you have been able to grow outside. And not only have you been able to grow outside, but you've been able to give other people space and a platform for their own personal growth. What is the enemy in this process? The enemy is ego. And it's a very hard thing to try and understand because we live in a world and our brains are constructed in such a way that we need to see opposites. We need to see X versus Y. Mm. But if you see, if you go into depth into some of our scriptures, you realize that what covered someone's access to the divine was not that someone was an entirely black, uh, entirely uh, dark-minded, evil person. But that they had allowed their own inner divinity to be shrouded by their ego. If you take the example, now we spoke about Duryodhan and Arjun having the same access. Another example is Ram and Ravan. Now, I'm not one of these people who says that Ravan was a, you know, a a good person that has been misunderstood. No, no, no. Ravan is the anti-hero of the story. But it's not as if Ravan was wholly evil in the way that we have been accustomed to hearing in the English language or in that sort of thought that we inherited from um, years of colonization. But we have to recognize that Ravan was an accomplished sadhaka. He had achieved lots of siddhis with his sadhana. He had uh, achieved darshan of his divine lord. Imagine, we are not in that place where we can do that. He had achieved a lot. He had done years and years and years, eons of penance to... Achieve some of the strength that he had. But what was his downfall? His downfall was his ego. And when we say ego, it, in its English word context, it comes up comes up as pride. Yes, pride is part of it. That's Abhiman. But in Sanskrit, the word itself gives us the meaning. Ahankar is the word for ego. It means what? Aham karta. I am the doer. Mm. The idea that everything that is, even my sadhana has been achieved by me. Not because of the grace of the divine. You know, this food that I have had has been, you sowed the seeds. You waited six months for it to sprout. You collected it. You cleaned it. You cooked it. No, it's come to you. Clothes have been bought by me. You harvested the cotton. You were the one who created it into cloth. You were the one who stitched it, packed it. No, you're not even, probably not even the one who washed it. So, this idea that Ahamkarta, this whole creation has been created by me, is what leads to someone's downfall. Now, how do we get rid of ahankar? One very simple way, and I don't even say this is a starting point, because many accomplished uh, meditators and salakas also benefit by this is to listen to kathas. Because then we get inspiration, not just on how great Bhagavan is, but also the journey as seekers. The start of this conversation, we spoke about how the process of meditation gives us... uh, Poison it releases the poison and what, but we also learnt what to do with it. That is where that is in the katha. We learnt how good Sangha can be transformative and take us from a demonic state to a divine state. Where is that? That is in the Katha. Now in Diwali, there is one of the days is called Narakasur, Naraka Chaturdashi, where Narakasur was um, killed by Bhagawan Shri Krishna and Satyabhama. Now, Naraka was was the child, not of Asuras. He was the child of Bhagawan Shri Vishnu and Bhudevi. And Vishnu was in a Varaha Roop. He had, or he conceived with Bhudevi, this child that was called Naraka. Naraka, despite his divine parentage, hung out with Asuras, Banasur and Mura. And as a result of that, from Divine went to dana. At the moment of his killing, and there's a whole story around what happened, why, this, that. At the moment of his death, at the hands of Bhagavan Shri Krishna, he looked at Bhagavan and realized that this is the Supreme Divinity. And I'm not going to say all of his sins got washed away. No, he had to pay. But what he said is, may this day of my death be the day that people not only light lamps but burst crackers so that they are woken up from their complacency. That there is a divine principle at play and that divine principle can consume us at any time. So let us live a life in recognition of that. That is why we burst crackers. Not because someone has like There is a divine principle behind this. And Kathas teach us. So there's an element of inner cleansing that happens through listening to Kathas that will lead us to loosen our association with their ego. Once that happens, there are many processes.
1: okay Um, Do you pray to deities other than Ganpati? Yes. Why? If Ganpati is your ish? Uh,
0: Because Ganpati tells me to pray to them. (laughs) <laughs> simple answer but I'll go I'll go a little bit deeper it's not that simplistic see um, we believe that we are choosing whom we pray to mm. but we are not the divine comes into our life in many forms and draws out the love that we have why? because they want us to understand something specific but the philosophical element of my, sometimes when this happens you get a little bit confused because you'll be like, oh, but I used to pray to Ganesha, now I'm praying to Devi or I'm praying to Krishna. Does that mean I'm being disloyal to Ganesha? That's where philosophy comes in. And in the Rigveda, it is said, Ekam Sat Vipra Bahuda Vadanti, the truth is one, the wise call it by different names. This is what, this is Brahman. Brahman manifesting for my needs what karuna what compassion that bhagwan has taken not just one but multiple forms in my lifetime to keep my connection with the divine and draw me towards them so not just my attitude when i am praying but any advaitin any advaita vedanta
1: practitioner who is worshiping the divine will worship it with that bhava but then what's the difference in the outcomes of those prayers
0: See, there are many. Uh, okay, I'll give you a Puranic example, and then I will talk about the principle. In Durga Puja, we celebrate the destruction of Mahishasur by Devi, by Ma Durga. That Mahishasur represents all the lower tendencies in us. But if you read the Durga Saptashati, in order for Ma to defeat this Mahishasur, she needed all of the divine astras of all of the deities. She needed the chakra of Vishnu Bhagawan. She needed the veil of Kumara. She needed the trishul of Bhagawan Shiva. She needed Pasha and Ankush from Ganeshji. All of these astras. She needed Vajra from Indra to defeat this. So in the same way, if we have a divinity that is inside us, or that is enlivening us, that is our essential core nature, to overcome this darkness of ignorance, we need all of these different, say astras, but really their capabilities, hmm. abilities. And different deities are able to bestow them on us. Now, you can go all the way through worship of one div- deity as well. There's no, nothing stopping you. A heart purified by the worship of Krishna will perceive the divine reality, no doubt. But some of us, all of us really, uh, have had layers and layers of ignorance. So each layer needs to be wiped off. Mm. The only question is, in this lifetime, is it one layer with one deity or multiple layers with
1: multiple deities? Mm. Kind of a simplistic question. Okay. Sometimes I think after a certain point, if your perception has increased to a certain degree, please tell me if this happens to you or even if it doesn't. Yeah. If you meet someone, you can kind of tell which deity they are worshiping without them mentioning it because certain characteristics show up in the way they speak, perhaps in the way they look. Uh, Again, this is not for everyone. This is not a conversation which everyone even understands. There's a lot of people listening to this and thinking that this is woo woo. Yeah. But people who have practiced sadhana, yeah, know exactly what I'm saying. Yeah. So if you are
0: familiar with the characteristics of that deity that is being worshipped, yes. So say for example, I have a um, if I worship uh, Shri Ganesha, okay, and I haven't really ever worshipped Narasimhaji. Then, if someone is worshipping Narasimhaji, I may not be able to recognize it. But if I have worshipped Narasimhaji or I am familiar with what is the energy that Narsimha Dev brings into the room, then you are able to recognize. Or at least you, are, when they say, this is my Ishta, you are able to see it. And you are right, you are able to see it in the appearance as well.
1: Like all the scon monks we've had on the show bring this bliss, freshness. All my Shiva Bhakt friends bring a certain level of isolation and detachment. Uh-huh. Uh, And all the Devi worshippers I know are either extremely active like in the head, in the thoughts or uh, they're very they have this nurturing energy about them.
0: And uh, the nature of our personality Bhagawan draws us based on what equipment
1: that we have got. Or that we need at that stage. And that
0: we need at that stage. And then they get amplified through the process of sincere worship.
1: Okay. Okay, I think that's about the end of the episode. Is there any topic you want to talk about? I, I just wanted to, I mean, it was a reflection, not that I've
0: come in with an sure. agenda to talk about this. We spoke about Bharata and, um, and uh, you know, drawing into uh, Sanatani culture to be able to nourish our mindsets and go into the future. I just want to leave people with one thought around them. And this thought has emerged from many coaching sessions that I do. So One of the things that happened this year is that people started to reach out to me for coaching and I think very, very few people, a handful of people, they tend to be senior executives uh, for a variety of reasons, including the fact that coaching these people will be able to get them, uh, will be able to have a multiplier effect into society. But coaching these very, very wealthy people and uh, very, very successful people It's taught me one thing. Many of them are lacking a definition of what success is. So you have these highly successful people thinking and experiencing themselves as failures. And one of the things that we do in the process is to reorient themselves and see themselves both as the success that they are, but also then being able to maximize their potential. And being able to know when is enough. So these are the three things. Now, why am I mentioning this? Because obviously, I am one person. We cannot coach everyone. Not everyone wants coaching. But if everyone is able to take this idea and define for themselves, or at least invest in understanding what success is, what success feels like intrinsically to them, then we will have a society that is satisfied and not chasing. Hmm. And as a result of that satisfaction, they will feel abundant and give more. If I'm constantly chasing, then even if I have a lot, I want more because I'm trying to fill a bottomless pit. But if I'm satisfied in myself, I feel successful, I feel happy, I'm able to give more. And the more we can orient ourselves from a society that chases, consumes and hoards, which historically we have not been, but the world itself is right now, the less we can go down on the trap and more we can move towards a sense of abundance and giving, the greater the probability is that Bharat will become the Vishwa Guru that we all wanted to be.
1: Om Dhamadkar, the guru of the podcasting world. The seeker. The seeker of the podcasting world. Thank you for another catch up. Uh, Hope to see you soon. Hope to learn from you again and hope to see you more of what that sponge brain of yours has accumulated when it comes to dharma.
0: (laughs) wonderful being here. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity for this Satsang. And I really look forward to
1: our next catch up. Thank you. Thank you. bro. See you soon. See you. That was the episode, ladies and gentlemen, Om Bhai also runs his own YouTube channel. And I will definitely urge you guys to go subscribe to his YouTube channel as well. He's been a mentor to me. He's been a spiritual guide in so many ways. And there's so much more about him that I know because I'm an offline friend of his. I've known him way before I even conceptualized beer biceps. I urge you to go see the other episodes we've done with Om Bhai if you haven't already. We're going to be back soon with some deep spiritual episodes just like this one. So keep supporting TRS. And until next time, guys, we'll see you very soon.